Hey, it's Seth Godin, author of The Practice, Shipping Creative Work, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I produce this podcast to help us both keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow faster by taking a sales-based approach to marketing. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. And if you're one of the many, many listeners who's left a review on Apple Podcasts, I want to drop a little something in the mail to thank you. Details after the interview. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Seth Godin to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, The Practice, Shipping Creative Work, published by Portfolio Penguin. Seth Godin is the author of 19 books that have been bestsellers around the world and have been translated into more than 35 languages. He's also the founder of the Alt MBA and the Akimbo Workshops, online seminars that have transformed the work of over 20,000 people who have attended them. He writes about the post-industrial revolution, the way ideas spread, marketing, leadership, and most of all, changing everything. His books include Lynchpin, Tribes, The Dip, and Purple Cow. His last book, This Is Marketing, was an instant bestseller around the world. In addition to his writing and speaking, Seth has founded several companies, including Yo-Yo Dine and Squidoo, and his blog which you can find by typing Seth into Google, is one of the most popular in the world. And he's the host of the Akimbo podcast, which I encourage you, dear listener, to subscribe to. In 2018, he was inducted into the Marketing Hall of Fame. And interesting fact, he has taught hundreds of people how to juggle, and he was once screamed at by the late comedian, Toadie Fields. Seth, congratulations on the practice and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, it's such an honor. You're doing great work on a regular basis. It's really a privilege to talk to you. Oh, please. The privilege is all mine. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Seth, can I call you Seth? I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) In your book, you uh, made several references to the American uh, late night comedy show, Saturday Night Live. And from when you first emailed me about this book and we set up the interview, and as I was reading the book, I started to feel more and more like the skit, which I will include a video of in in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. I kept feeling like Chris Farley interviewing Paul McCartney. And uh, I don't know if you ever uh, saw that one. 
I'm going to have to go to the show page to see it. I've never seen that one. So Chris Farley played, he did this skit where he would interview famous people like Paul McCartney. And for the younger listeners, that was one of the Beatles and the band that Paul McCartney was in before he was in Wings. So Chris Farley played this really inept interviewer, which, you know, I can kind of relate to. And he would interview these really famous people and then he would feel really stupid and he would slap his head. And, and so anyway, that's, you know, that's, that's how I've, uh, you know, I just, I'm worried. So that's, I, I'm nervous. I'm, uh, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. But Seth Godin, you were on episode 200 of the Marketing Book Podcast. And thus far, that is the most downloaded episode ever. And this will be episode 304. So I waited 200 episodes to get you on the first time. And then now it's about 104. So I'm hoping that maybe maybe after about 50 more, uh, I might be able to get you back. So I'm getting the impression, are you, are you picking up the pace again on, on writing books? Well, you're the one who just picked up the pace. The only way I can come back is if I write a marketing book. And I'm afraid that I have not writing one right this minute. I will keep, <laughs> this, in, I will keep this in mind. Uh, you know, the practice might not sound like a marketing book, but it is. Oh, yes. And the reason is because there's two ways to approach our jobs. One of them is to do what's asked of us, to be a cog in the machine, to churn out what we did yesterday. And I got to tell you, between AI and outsourcing and the pandemic and the shifts in our economy, those jobs aren't going to be fun going forward. And the other jobs are the ones where we do something that hasn't been done before. And I call that creative. That when we ship creative work, we are doing something that might not work. We are making an assertion. We are engaging with the world. And you need to figure out if that's the work you want to do. And if it is, I think this book might help. It will. And I just have to say that this book really got into my head. <laughs> and I, I say that it's like I haven't read a book that really got inside my head and started dealing with some of the head trash that I have and probably everyone does since I read <laughs> What to Do When It's Your Turn and It's Always Your Turn, which is your one of your earlier books. And that was the book that made me feel like you were sitting next to me saying, Douglas, start this podcast and start it now. There's no more excuses. And it was like, uh, I guess, okay, I guess I guess I better do it. I, <laughs> I've gotten this, this insight. And so this is the same way. And I think there's been one other book that's really gotten into my head uh, since that one. That was The Business of Expertise by, by David C. Baker. And that was a, a, a past uh, interview. So you mentioned creative. And, and let's go back for just a minute here and talk about the uh, the title and just a couple of vocabulary words. So explain a little bit more about what you what you mean by shipping and the creative you just touched on a bit and, and work. So if it doesn't ship, it doesn't count. You're welcome to have hobbies. I think hobbies are great. But when you ship something to the world, you're doing it as a professional. You're putting it in front of the people you made it for and saying, here, I made this. And the reason it's work is because we're not interested in whatever flew into your head this morning or you being whatever authentic means. <laughs> we are interested in you making a promise and keeping it. So shipping creative work means that you find your audience, you find your genre, you figure out the change you seek to make in the world. You make a promise and then you do your best to keep it. And all of that is fraught because all of it sets us up either for success or failure. And we can easily, as you said, get in our head because we hold back 
We hold back because we're on defense. We hold back because we're afraid. We hold back because it's easier to let someone else go first. And my argument is that marketing is the act of making things better by making better things. And if you're going to make better things, it's going to take generosity and guts. And it helps if you have a practice to do that. And we're going to talk about all of that. I just want to read this one quote. This is a book for people who want to lead, to write, or to sing, for people who seek to teach, to innovate, and to solve interesting problems, for people who want to go on the journey to become a therapist, a painter, or a leader, for people like us. It's possible. The people who came before us have managed to speak up, stand up, and make a difference. While each journey is unique, each follows a pattern, and once you see it, it's yours. Talk about this pattern that our lives follow. Well, we can't predict the future, but we have a pretty good hunch that it's going to rhyme with the past. And there are patterns in how we do great work and how we get stuck. There are patterns in what kinds of things people want to engage in and which ones they don't. And we have made up a whole bunch of myths about why it's somebody else's job to deal with all of this unknown, that the muse needs to come whisper in our ear. We need talent. We need to be picked. All of these myths are toxic because what they do is they force us to be ungenerous. They force us to be compliant. They force us to seek status instead of contribution. And so what I'm arguing in the book is that a practice is the idea of showing up even when you don't feel like it, of showing up on the regular, of showing up because you can. And one example of a practice is I'm 7,500 blog posts into my blog. And tomorrow, as we're recording this, tomorrow will be Saturday. And uh, there'll be a blog post from me tomorrow, not because it's my best blog post, but because it's Saturday. And that's great leadership by example. Now, I want to uh, read one other thing that is in the book here on page six. You say the industrial system that brainwashed us demands that we focus on outcomes to prove we followed the recipe. That seemed to be one of the one of the big uh, sticking points in the book was following. It, it reminded me of the term best practices. You know, copying, <laughs> doing exactly that. And in a recent episode of your podcast, you you demonstrated all this machine learning and AI and how that really, like you talked about just a moment ago, can start to take things away. And that seems to be in direct <laughs> contravention with this whole industrial approach. Okay. So there, there are two parts to uh, that we need to explore here. The first one is uh, the dependence on outcome. And the second one is following the recipe. So following the recipe was really important to the industrial age. If you think about just a hundred years ago, no factory was operating at the efficiency it operates now. Just a hundred years ago, you couldn't make a car, a baked good, an insurance policy as easily and as quickly as you could now. So we spent a hundred years pushing, pushing workers to follow the recipe. Because if our workers would just follow the recipe, our efficiency would go up. And what happened in the last 10 or so years is efficiency started to flatten out that you can follow the recipe all you want, it's not going to get more efficient. There's very little to be gained by having more obedient employees going forward. So what's left? What's left is creativity. What's left is innovation, somebody who 
doesn't follow the rules, but makes the rules. However, and this is a huge however, if in our head we are dependent on the outcome, on the positive feedback, on the market share, on all of it, and we try to reverse engineer our innovation, we will end up being disappointed. Because while we must begin with the customer in mind, we cannot let ourselves off the hook and say, it has to work or it didn't count. No, that's not true. What counts is that you brought your full self to it with understanding and insight. But maybe it's not going to work. Most of the time, it won't. That a million books are going to come out this year, and only a hundred of them are going to be big bestsellers. Does that mean that 999,000 of them are bad? No. It just means they didn't get lucky at the last cycle. Mm. So earlier I mentioned that you've taught hundreds of people to juggle. Explain what you mean when you say juggling is about throwing, not catching. Right. And, you know, I just uh, went on Instagram live with my friend Angeli. So I think it's now thousands of people I've taught. How to oh, okay. Well, so in the uh, second edition of your book, you'll need to. Exactly. I'll have <laughs> I'll that that. So if you watch a really good juggler, what you will be doing probably is noticing that they don't drop any balls. That the way we keep track of juggling skill is did they drop any balls? And when someone does drop a ball while juggling, we feel a little badly for them. And so when people try to learn how to juggle, they focus all their energy on catching. And that works until you lunge for a ball. Because once you lunge for a ball, you're out of position and the next ball will inevitably fall. Inevitably. You can't do anything about it. Once you lunge, it's over. The act of seeking to catch the ball ruins your ability to juggle. And so the way I teach juggling is I teach people to throw and we don't even try to catch. For the first 45 minutes, we are throwing and having the balls land on the ground without trying to catch them, which means every few minutes, you got to bend over and pick them all up and start over. Throw, 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 until you get good at throwing. And once you get good at throwing, the catching takes care of itself. And the same thing is true for the creative work. If you are living a life of emergency, that's because you're focused on catching. But if you can practice your throwing, the emergencies will go away. So talk about when you went fly fishing and you were the one that said, I, I don't really need the hook. How, how that probably helped with your fly fishing skills. Oh, it, it was such a magical day. So uh, my dear friends, Alan and Bill, who founded Fast Company Magazine, had an advance. They invited, it wasn't a retreat, it was an advance. They invited 60 of us to, uh, I think it was Jackson Hole, out of season. And we were there to invent 100 ideas for the new uh, season of the magazine. And one morning at five o'clock, they wake us all up and we're going to go fly fishing. And as the guides are taking us to the river, I ask, do you think I could have a fly without a hook? And they look at me really funny. <laughs> but the thing is, we were going to throw the fish back anyway. We weren't hungry. We weren't foraging. It was a sport. And it felt to me like the sport would be more fun if I didn't have to punish the fish and pull the hook out of its mouth. What I realized, the side effect was that because I wasn't willing a fish using telepathy to bite the hook, I could focus on simply being present. I wasn't focused on the outcome. I was focused on the process, mm -hmm. on the throwing, not the catching. And over the next two and a half hours, 
without any stress whatsoever, I learned how to cast. And I'm not a particularly athletic person, but I can say that I was one of the just learning students there because so many other people were trying to catch a fish. I wasn't trying to catch a fish. I was just trying to cast the line. So tomorrow's blog post, like you said, it doesn't have to be the best. It might be. We'll see. <laughs> but you, you were showing up. And I am always wrong about my blogs. Always. If I, every once in a while, I'll write a blog post and I'll say, that's the one. I'm going to get a ton of email about this. It's going to get shared. Crickets. And other times I'll be behind and I'll dash something off and people will say, that's the most profound thing I ever read. <laughs> so I don't have any clue as to what the winners are. None. And then I have to tell you, Mr. Godin, that on page 28, it was like you were patting me uh, on the shoulder saying it's going to be okay because you wrote, <laughs> I feel like an imposter often. <laughs> Seth Godin feels like an imposter sometimes? Only when I'm doing my best work. So let me explain. Uh, imposter syndrome is real. Lots of people have it. And people say, it, it's only, it was only named about 50 years ago, but imposter syndrome is that feeling of being a fraud, a fake. What right do I have to be here? And people say, how do I get rid of imposter syndrome? And they're surprised when I say, well, of course you feel like an imposter because you are one. <laughs> that what it means to be a leader of any kind, an innovator of any kind, is you are doing something that hasn't been done quite this way before, which means you can't be sure, which means there's no guarantee, which means that when you show up with enthusiasm and excitement, you have to acknowledge you're faking it because you are, you can't be sure. That's the symptom of someone being healthy because what it says is, uh, I am going to dance with this feeling anyway. I am not a psychopath who is just sure that everything I do is right. One question that comes up in your podcast, you said the, probably more than anything else is um, about passion, like where people uh, ask, you know, uh, where do I find it? Or if I'm not, you know, if I'm not passionate about my work, what should I do? And I want you to explain what you mean when you say that the idea of do what you love, which a lot of young college graduates are hearing... <laughs> A lot of young people are hearing, a lot of people are hearing. The idea of do what you love is for amateurs. Love what you do is for professionals. Yeah, such toxic, dangerous, wrong-headed graduation speech, which is do what you love. Well, yeah, that's fine unless what you love is playing ping pong in your basement because no one's going to pay you to do that. And 100 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, no one did what they loved. You did what you needed to to feed your family, and the rest of the time, you got to have a hobby. What I think is so much more productive is to persuade yourself through practice, through effort, to love what you do. Because the fact is there are some people who love sweeping the floor. There are some people who love copywriting. There are some people who love public speaking. They are not different than you or me. They simply decided that whatever their craft was, what they were a professional at, they would choose to love it. And people who say, well, I'm not passionate about this, so I'm going to do a pretty lousy job, they're hiding. They're giving in to Pressfield's resistance. They are coming up with an excuse for not confronting their fear because 
if you have a job where you get to listen to podcasts, if you get a job where you get to work indoors and aren't exposed to toxic chemicals, you're way ahead of the game. And leaving that job simply because you're afraid of something might not be the best plan. The best plan might say, how do I take elements of this where I get to ship creative work and in that find my joy? So we've talked that this isn't just for people who think of themselves as creatives. This could be all kinds of of people that this book uh, applies to. But you write that writing is a universal solvent for creatives. So how would that apply to somebody who doesn't necessarily think of themselves as, let's say, a a blogger or a copywriter? You know, there's data that shows that some people don't have a voice in their head the way others do, that they're the internal narrator, but they fake it pretty well. Most people narrate their day. They say to themselves, I think I'm going to go to the grocery store. And then they go to the grocery store. We have that internal narrator. That's a form of writing. And writing it down is really powerful. Morning pages are really useful. Three pages every morning, not about whatever you're working on, just whatever you wake up with in your head. A daily blog in which you make assertions and describe what you're seeing in the world. Plans, write them down. The act of writing them down clarifies your thinking. Showing it to someone else saying, I'm going to follow this path, look at my plan. Even though you might be more intuitive than that, it was your intuition that supplied you with what you needed to write it down in the first place. So yeah, it's the universal solvent. Everybody talks to themselves, write down what you're saying, make it more clear, and then you will find your path more easily. I do that with this one app called Day One, where I just turn it on and I just start untangling. <laughs> I just start, no one reads it, but it, it, it is helpful. It gets me uh, uh, somewhat organized and helps me to think through things. So oftentimes when I'm dealing with maybe a prospective agency client and we're talking to them about a lot of the things that you talk about in the book, like creating, you know, being generous, teaching your customers. There is this thought of, oh, we don't want to give away our our secret sauce. And of course, I say, I'm not sure you really have any secret sauce, but that's that may actually not be what <laughs> your prospective customers might be interested in. Explain what you mean when you say that hoarding is toxic. We could uh, untangle this for a long time. Let's start with this. Uh, if Coca-Cola published the recipe for Coca-Cola, nobody would start making their own. <laughs> right. And uh, nobody has an actual secret sauce. What you have is an unsecret sauce. What you have is what the public understands about what you can offer them. And the more clear you are with it, the more generous you are with it, the more likely it is they will trust you. And trust, not attention, is the core of marketing going forward. Marketing in the 60s and 70s was about attention, and now it has shifted to be about trust. Attention is almost irrelevant when you have trust. But then the next part is the word hoarding is a verb. The act of hoarding puts you on a, it creates an arena of scarcity. I can't give you this idea because then I won't have it anymore. But what we know about ideas is that if I give it to you, then we'll both have it. And if we both have it, we are more likely to interact. And if we interact, value will be created. And if value is created, you'll be back tomorrow. 
that if everyone in town comes to your farm and takes some corn, you go bankrupt. And if everyone in town comes to your factory and takes a widget, you go bankrupt. But if everyone in town comes to your place, your studio, and takes one of your ideas, then you're rich. Mm. And you might start to incite change, which you talk quite a bit about. And this one section of the book was so relevant to sales and, and, and content, where you say that art doesn't seek to create comfort. It creates change, and change requires tension. And you know, we're also creating purposefully creating discomfort. So you need to make people uncomfortable in the short run so they could be, you know, hospitable later. Why <laughs> would anyone sign up to create tension? Well, if you want to pull a boat with a rope, the rope at some point is going to get tense. That's how ropes work. That's how chains work. That's how anything that causes chain change works. It changes things because you pull on one end and then it pulls the other end. So the tension that we feel, for example, when someone is giving us directions is the tension of, oh, I better get this part right or I'll be lost. That pushes us to get this part right. The tension that we feel when we are actually learning something is the tension of momentarily becoming incompetent on our way to becoming competent. That when we engage with somebody who's using the wrong piece of equipment, in the moment when we start talking to them about possibility, they are being defensive because they're going to have to give up the thing they thought was the right answer. These things all create tension. That they're, It's not hard at all to find music that you can play in the background of you know some office building or store that no one will hear or remember, but that causes no change to happen. On the other hand, the first time you heard, I don't know, a Lou Reed song, it jarred you because it wasn't like what you expected. And that's what creativity does. It changes us. But could it also be seen as tension, or I should say, and, is it more tension that's on the part of the receiver? They don't necessarily associate that with you. Like, I, I, when I read that, I thought, oh, gosh, you know, I don't like making people uncomfortable. Oh, sure you do. You make people uncomfortable every time you make a podcast. <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> what I mean by that is someone now has a problem that they didn't have before. And their problem is they haven't read a copy of the practice yet. And if you do a good job in a podcast, you've created a problem for them that they can only relieve by spending time reading a book instead of watching something on Netflix. And if you don't want to create, you know, there, there was this thing on the BBC for years, it might still be there, where this guy would read out the shipping news and it consists of a whole bunch of words that make absolutely no sense at all. And you would need to know what they all mean, but it was a service from the BBC to tell people there was a storm off the coast of France or whatever. And if you can, if you get a chance to listen to it, it's extraordinarily hypnotic because all of the words are sort of in English but none of them make any sense whatsoever. And pretty soon it causes no tension whatsoever. It makes you go to sleep because it's magic to hear a human being talking in a way that causes no chain, talking in a way that simply soothes us. But, and it's a huge but, training a computer to do that would be trivial. The hard part is figuring out how to say something that does 
cause appropriate tension that does help somebody change in a direction they would like to change. Well, I have heard that this podcast is very good for people that are having trouble going to sleep. Uh, <laughs> it seems to get a lot of downloads in the, in, the, in the middle of the night. So, you know, any way I can help and be generous, Seth Godin, you know, there you go. You know, there was another, well, many, but this one particular line in the, in the book, I found very comforting and encouraging. And that's when you write that you can produce more than you know if you're intent on doing it for someone else. So thinking about how can this be helpful for someone else, I I wonder if that also helps people get past the the block of, well, everyone already knows this, or uh, I I already know this. Unless you were raised by wolves, you were raised to believe that your job in the community is to be helpful, not to be selfish. And it's true that no one wakes up in the morning saying, I hope someone hustles me today. I hope someone gets really in my face, makes me feel uncomfortable, so I buy something that I don't want. Now, as times have gotten more desperate, more and more people are adopting a hustle lifestyle, but no one they're hustling is glad they're being hustled. So when it comes time to do creative work, when it comes time to dig deep, to make assertions, to make things better, we say, well, I don't want to hustle anybody. I don't want to, I don't want to like put my elbows up there and claim my slot. Well, yeah, I get that because you were taught not to be selfish. But what if we looked at it a different way? What if somebody had swallowed some poison and you had the antidote? Is it a hustle to offer them the antidote? I don't think so. In fact, they'd be pretty angry if you didn't. And so we can view our work as a chance to make things better. Now, it might not be true. It might be our work isn't good enough. So let's begin by telling ourselves the truth, which is we probably have more work to do. We probably have to dig deeper. But once we do, if we have something that people will say thank you after they engage with it, well, then the generous thing to do is to help people engage with it. And one of the things that had a big impact on me as I was thinking about this book is the work of Hilma Af Klimt. Uh, Hilma was a, a contemporary modern artist in the 1920s and 30s in Sweden. And she came from just enough money that she didn't have to show or sell any of her paintings. And she made 10,000 paintings, and no one ever saw them. And in her will, she commanded her nephew to show them to no one for 20 more years. So I saw her exhibit at the Guggenheim. And some people say it's a breakthrough. And the fact is, if her art had been widely seen in the 20s and 30s, the entire world of art would be different today. But I don't think it was a breakthrough. I think it was selfish and cowardly because she hid her art from the world and she did it because she was afraid. And I wish she had had enough trust in herself and in us to have said, here, I made this because not only would she have changed us, but we would have changed her and the art would have been even more extraordinary. You know, one of the, my favorite words in marketing and sales is empathy. And I love when it's discussed in in books, and it seems to be so difficult for for people and and companies to uh, employ and, uh, and and even understand. And in your in the the your last book, this is marketing. You talked about practical empathy, and I was wondering if you could touch on that. But also, you mentioned that a key component of practical empathy is a commitment to not be empathic to everyone. Right, and this is something that. 
you know, I wrote that book two years ago. It still comes up for me over and over. Mm. So what is pra practical empathy? Practical empathy says everybody doesn't want what you want. They don't know what you know. They don't believe what you believe. They don't see what you see. I think we can all agree on that. And then the second half is, and that's okay. And if you can't abide by that, then you can't be a marketer. Because if you are insisting that people come around to you and your point of view before they engage with you, they're not coming. They're just not. We have to go where they are because mm -hmm. they're not going to come to where we are. But if you go to where they are and talk to them in language that they can and want to understand, then you are doing a great service because you are opening the door for an interaction that can actually make things better. It's hard for organizations to, to adopt this because they think it means giving up their power. But it doesn't because of the whole idea of the smallest viable audience. We need the smallest viable breakthrough for the smallest viable audience. Which group of people share an interest, a point of view, a way of being that we can serve them? And then we must ignore everyone else. So my books are not written in Icelandic. And if you only speak Icelandic, I am sorry, I'm not doing a good job of helping you. But I made the decision that that's, these books aren't for you. And if a publisher offers to translate one of my books, I eagerly say yes. Some of my books are not embraced by people who think that capitalism and markets are a real problem and that what we really should do is give everyone the same uh, 20 uh, basics of life and be done with it. Well, I don't write my books for those people either, and that's okay, because it's not for them. And Heinz ketchup is not for people who want something spicy. Heinz should not come out with a really spicy ketchup. That would be a mistake. If they want to call it something else, that's fine. But ketchup isn't supposed to be spicy. It's supposed to be bland. It is bland food for people who want bland food, the smallest viable audience that can support what you do. The book has uh, oh, almost 200 uh, different sections, uh, or, or I guess uh, sort of chapters, and 98 was, uh, it's titled, Intentional Action is Design with Purpose. And I was wondering if you could talk about these three questions, which if any sales effort or any content marketing effort were to answer just these three questions, every uh, sale and <laughs> and most companies would be more successful. And the three questions are, who are you trying to change? And what change are you trying to make? And how will you know if it worked? I mean, I'm thinking about when I'm talking to a company that is you know trying to find a, a solution and we might may or may not be able to help them, the more I could tether the conversation just to those three things, it's always more productive. Right. Some people call this design thinking, and that gets uh, into the in the way because some people have trouble with design and some people have trouble with thinking. Um, I would be the latter. <laughs> the alternative is to say, is this intentional or are you just showing up? Because if it's intentional, that means you have a point of view. It means you have an agenda. If you don't have a point of view or an agenda, don't show up because we have other things to do today. And your point of view and your agenda ought to be about action. Something measurable is going to happen. That doesn't mean we're going to live and die by measurement, 
But if nothing happens, then why exactly did you do it? So if I say I am making a Broadway show for people who like books like this and operas like that, now we know who it's for. Mm -hmm. If my goal is that at the end, they have experienced something they will remember for weeks late, for weeks to come and talk to their family about it, now I know what it's for. How will I know if it's working? I will watch and listen to what they said. That makes it really easy to ignore the review in the local high school newspaper of some kid who got dragged to the play and hated it. Well, it wasn't for you. I don't have to listen to you. Who's it for? What's it for? How will we know if it's working? Most effort that's made by people who call themselves marketers, they don't have a clue as to the answer to all three questions. Oh, my goodness. And that's why, Seth Godin, I know you're not a stand-up comedian, but Section 122 is titled, What's It For? And it's very, very short. Let me just read it. We have a new ad campaign. Fabulous. What's it for? Well, we have great actors and a new logo and wait until you hear the soundtrack. Sure, that's fun and it looks like a lot of effort went into it, but what's it for? Our goal is to get more shoppers into stores. Got it. How does this ad do that? <laughs> I have that conversation all the time trying to help folks uh, you know, understand it. I think it's particularly a problem with folks in marketing, whether it's their fault or not, who are more focused on marketing activity than trying to tie what they're doing to <laughs> what's it for? And there, But there are honest answers to these questions, right? What's it for? To make my boss happy. To make my boss happy is a totally legitimate B2B function. And if people could be honest about it, we do a much better job of making your boss happy. So, you know, someone reached out to us about the Alt-MBA and they're from a big famous company and they say, we're putting together an RFP and we're looking for this ongoing training, blah, 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 blah. And it's not what the Alt-MBA does or what it's for. And we assumed reading it that their what's it for was let's actually educate the people in our organization about these issues. But upon closer inspection, it's pretty clear that's not the what's it for. The what's it for is this person has a boss <laughs> and their boss said to them, what kind of training are we doing in this area? That's the what's it for. And that's why they're going to buy something that I would not be proud to make. Yes, yes. So it's, let's, let's, you know, you say it's honest. So that's, that is the, the real reason. And uh, it's, I remember hearing in sales training that uh, they, they say that when they train psychiatrists, one of the things they train them or, or psychologists is the problem the patient brings is never really the problem. <laughs> so you have to keep uh, pulling back at that. Exactly. There, there was one other, uh, these are the greatest hits. We're not you know, doing justice to so much of the book, but you have another thing about intentional action has a few simple elements. Again, just for the benefit of the listener, one is determine who it's for, learn what they believe, what they fear, and what they want. And this page, these six steps, it's almost like they could be the first page of any business plan or marketing plan or sales plan. And then it's be prepared to describe the change you seek to make, care enough to commit to making that change, ship work that resonates with the people it's for. Once you know whom it's for and what it's for, watch and learn to determine whether your in intervention succeeded. And the last one is repeat. I mean, there, there are whole books written about just those um, 
just the six steps. A couple other quick questions before we wrap up. You mentioned that your audience doesn't want your authentic voice, and yet that's a, a term that I hear so much in marketing is about being authentic. You argue that they want your consistent voice. Explain the difference. Right. So it's not just my audience, it's every audience. And um, if people are hearing the sirens in the background, the local volunteer fire department has a big horn that they blast every time. And I, they're volunteers, they work hard. So it's fine with me if they don't <laughs> use cell phones. I just want to acknowledge them and thank them for looking out for me. And, and my son anyway, my son is a paramedic yeah. first responder. So this is a, uh, this is a first responder friendly podcast. Exactly. Well, thank you to him. So authenticity is all the rage. You know, every once in a while, there's a job for authenticity. Uh, that when Amy Winehouse is publicly having a nervous breakdown, there's a group of fans that want to see that. But most of the time, we want nothing to do with authenticity. If back in the days when we went to restaurants, if the chef didn't feel like cooking Mexican that night, you went to a Mexican restaurant. That's the food they need to bring because it needs to be consistently keeping a promise, not what the creator, quote, felt like. And so when people talk about authenticity, what they're really saying is, I want to do whatever I want and I want it to work. And you don't get that. It's not allowed. What you get to do is say, I see a problem on behalf of the people I am working for and I will solve it regardless of whether I'm in a good mood or not, regardless of whether today is my best day at work. That's what we want from a lawyer, from a doctor, from anybody who we have trusted and bought something from or voted for. We want them to consistently show up as if. And then it turns out, ironically, that if we do show up as if, passion follows, flow follows, being in the moment follows, but they followed because we consistently showed up to do the work, not the other way around. Yes. And I, we can't avoid the issue of writer's block. Uh, and I just want to quote, you say, writer's block is a myth. Writer's block is a choice. Writer's block is real, and yet it's all invented. Seth Godin, what are you talking about? Well, no one gets bike riding block, plumber's block, or even talking block. So why is writer's block so special? Well, it's because it's misnamed. It should be called fear of bad writing. And lots of people have fear of bad writing. And so they don't want to write, and write can take whatever form we're talking about, public speaking or whatever. They don't want to write because they're afraid bad stuff will happen. And that fear causes them to not write anything. And the solution to writer's block is bad writing. If you simply do enough bad writing, which everyone is capable of, regardless of whether they claim to be blocked or not, if you do enough bad writing, sooner or later, some good writing will slip through. If you say, I don't have any ideas for this new product my client wants. If you said, oh, I have 2,000 bad ideas, I guarantee you, once you work your way through horsehair shampoo and the rest, sooner or later, a really good idea is going to slip through when you weren't looking. So show me your bad ideas, and I will be able to prove to you that you don't have writer's block. You have fear of bad ideas. Right. Like just cast the line. Don't worry so much about hooking the, the, the fish each time. Exactly. You included 
I think it was 45 ways we sacrifice our work to fear. And do you think that one of the biggest contributors to fear is this focusing on the outcome first and foremost? It is almost entirely the cause of our fear. Like, it's not why we're afraid of bears in the middle of the night in the woods. It's not why we're afraid of vampires or uh, an asteroid slamming into the earth. But in our modern world, where we got taught that our job is measured by whichever critic is walking by and whichever metric is handy, the outcome looms over us. And I am not letting people off the hook and saying outcomes don't matter. What I'm saying is you must design and do the work even if the outcome isn't going to be what you hope for. Because if you spend all your time imagining the bad outcome, that is where your fear will live. Mm. So last thing I wanted to ask about the, um, the book was about constraints. And in my earlier career as, a, as an ad man, uh, there was this expression called tight briefs liberate, meaning the more specific yep. you can be for the creative team, actually, it's, it's, it's easier. It's, it, they can be much more productive. And the really good creative people wanted a tight brief. So you say finding the constraints and embracing them is a common thread in successful creative work. Talk about that. As you know, if we think about what happens when a musical act has a big first album and then they fail, it's not just the expectations, it's the resources. The first album they had to make in their bedroom, the first album they had to make with only four tracks, the first album they had to make in a short period of time first album they had to make when no one had any expectations. The second time, they've got millions of dollars, they got tons of drugs, they have 24 track, 48 track, they got a famous producer. All the constraints are, lift, are lifted. And with nothing to lean against, they make junk. We have to lean against something to find our leverage. And so if we get back to who's it for and what's it for, those boundaries are precisely the constraints that enable us to go to the edge. Outside the box, that's overrated. It's really hard to think outside the box because it's dark and cold outside the box. But on the edge of the box, we get a chance to change things just enough. So we got to be super specific about what the box is. What's allowed, what's not allowed? What are the degrees of freedom? And instead of fighting every constraint we see, maybe we can fight one constraint. But generally, we can come up with really good stuff without fighting any of them. Amen. So, Seth, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? We have to get out of our own way. That most of the problems that people have when they think about being creative are in their head. And you can get out of those problems by being generous and passionate until you feel passionate. That you can go ahead and do this work that you would be proud of to make things better, and you can start right where you are, because where else can you start? And you can start right now, because when else would be a good time? Well said. And it works, because <laughs> there was an element of that in the other book, What to Do When It's Your Turn, and It's Always Your Turn, <clears throat> and look at this knucklehead. Look at the impact you had there. So what is one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from the book, or maybe one we've talked about? Well, most of us have spent too much time on Zoom calls during this difficult year we've all been through, and most of us have felt disconnected. 
And I would encourage you to create a connection. Find one or two or three people and discuss the book. Find one or two or three people and find an accountability buddy. Find some place that feels safer than where you are right now and less lonely than where you are right now and explore the work. Do the work. Show up with the work for each other and just each other and practice because it's the practice that will lead you forward. Yes, and there was a section of the book we didn't get a chance to talk about, about the power of cohorts. Uh, very, very uh, good reminder for me, and, and you demonstrate how, how helpful that can be for people. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Um, I read the book Cast by uh, Isabel Wilkerson, and it's the most extraordinary nonfiction book I've read in years. And as a marketer, I'm really sensitive to words and concepts and ideas. She dramatically lifts the landscape when we think about racial justice, when we think about the culture we live in, when we think about the society that's all around us. Um, I, if I could get every single person in the United States to read that book, I would do so. Mm. Well, we will make sure to include a link to that at this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And uh, we'll also include all the other links so people can find out more about Alt-MBA and uh, the, the things you're doing and your podcast and so forth. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is The Practice, Shipping Creative Work. The author is Seth Godin. Seth, thank you very much for joining us again on the Marketing Book Podcast. What a privilege. Go make your ruckus, Douglas. It's, it's good work, and I'm glad to be part of it. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who've left an iTunes review, I would like to return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I will drop it in the mail to you. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on this show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of, for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.